It's the Mark Stein Show. ago, November 20th, 1820, the American ship the Essex, a whaler out of Nantucket, was suddenly and without apparent reason charged by an abnormally large, about 85 foot long, sperm whale bull coming at them at about twice his usual speed. He hit the ship's bow full on, crushed it and then propelled the whaler backwards as he drove into the hull. The bull then withdrew, shook off the timbers and took off never to be seen again. The Essex sank quickly, and the crew took to the whale boats. The steward, William Bond, hurrying below to retrieve what maps and other navigational aids he could find. The nearest land was the Marquesas, which are today part of French Polynesia, 1,200 miles to the west. But the crew didn't fancy the sound of that, fearing there might be cannibals. And so they voted to overrule the captain and make for South America 2,000 miles to the east. And they became the cannibals, first eating their shipmates as they died, and then drawing straws to determine who among the living would be killed to feed the others. In the end, eight men survived, told their tale, And among other things, it inspired Herman Melville to write Moby Dick 200 years ago today. As the old joke has it, two months at sea and not a sight of Dick. And then suddenly he's there and coming at you at 50 miles an hour. Make of that what metaphorical use you will. Is the ship, the Trump campaign and the oncoming whale an algorithmically supercharged Dominion voting systems machine? Is the ship a perambulating mum from London or Melbourne and the charging whale an enraged constable? Ah, well. On the election front, the Thursday press conference by the president's lawyers continues to make sperm whale-sized waves. On the left, the only point of interest is Rudy Giuliani's leaking hair dye, a Grecian tragedy, so to speak. On the right, the principal controversy is the spat between Sidney Powell, whom I interviewed on Monday, and Tucker Carlson, who interviewed me on Wednesday. Let me say this. uh, Last time round, 2016, there was no meaningful foreign interference in the presidential election, or at least not by Putin. The Russia investigation was created as a cover for domestic interference in the presidential election, and by persons at the highest level in the United States government, including Joe Biden, who was intimately involved in meetings to screw over uh, Michael Flynn. Oh, and also uh, including the heads of the most powerful bureaucracies on earth, who in turn enlisted the aid of other powerful intelligence agencies elsewhere on earth, including MI6 and GCHQ. I don't think it's possible to watch my long-form interviews with George Papadopoulos or read my column from a few years ago, Tinker Taylor, Clapper Carter, Downer Halper Spy, 
without concluding that the Democrats used illegally and improperly all the big shot money no object federal acronyms uh, to try to scuttle Trump. So given what they did last time, what we know they did last time, why wouldn't they do it this time? The only difference is they don't presently control, or at least not fully, all those federal agencies. But they do control the political machines in key Democrat cities in half a dozen so-called swing states. Democrat cities that mysteriously all stopped counting at around the same time on election night because, says Sidney Powell, they knew by then that Trump was so far ahead in those states that the fake votes they'd prepared weren't going to be enough to reverse that result. And so they needed to shut things down to adjust the Dominion voting system's algorithm uh, to find some more Biden votes. Can she make that stand up in court? Well, we shall see, presumably. But I will say this. When we were talking a couple of days ago, Sydney slightly demurred at my characterization of Dominion as a Canadian company. And she said it was basically a Venezuelan operation. And I've been thinking about this. As you know, the minute this company was first mentioned a couple of days after the election, uh, because its machine had... Uh, quote-unquote, accidentally transferred 6,000 Trump votes to Biden in Michigan, I said, hmm, Dominion, that sounds rather Canadian for an American election. And I looked it up and found it was headquartered in Toronto. No surprise there. What could be more boringly, respectably Canadian than a corporate entity called Dominion? Uh, many of the oldest established Canadian companies from the 19th and early 20th century are Dominion this and Dominion that. Dominion stores! Why do more Canadians shop at Dominion than at any other store? Why, it's mainly because of the meat. Mainly because of the meat? Yes, it's mainly because of the meat. Dominion sells tons of meat every day, and every pound of it, every single ounce, is unconditionally guaranteed to please where it counts, on your table. And Toronto Dominion Bank. Toronto Dominion. The bank where people make the difference. But it's an odd name, don't you think? Dominion. An odd name to pick for a Canadian company in 2002. After all, Dominion Stores now calls itself Metro Supermarkets and Toronto Dominion markets itself as TD Bank, America's neighbourhood bank, uh, in the way that Dominion Voting Systems is America's neighbourhood voting system. Then we have Canada's chief electoral officer, whose office has been running national elections since the dawn of the Dominion and reports directly to Parliament rather than to the government, so the guy doesn't come under Justin or the Liberal Party. And so he felt free to take the unusual step in an Elections Canada tweet I mentioned the other day of dissing Dominion voting systems by name and explaining that the Dominion of Canada doesn't use Dominion machines because Canadian elections use paper ballots hand-counted under the watchful eye of scrutineers. 
scrutineers, a word that does not exist in the crappy U.S. electoral system. Uh, a couple of uh, provincial elections in the Maritimes have used Dominion products, but only as optical scanners of paper ballots. And even then, the optical scanners failed and necessitated hand counts. Uh, but nowhere in the Dominion of Canada... Uh, is there a jurisdiction that uses Dominion or any other voting machine per se? Which makes you wonder why a voting machine company would headquarter itself in a country that doesn't use voting machines. Answer, because Canada, whatever you think of it, is a globally respectable country and only 100 miles up the Queen Elizabeth Way from the United States, with whom it enjoys privileged trading relations. Sidney Powell changed my view of Dominion. It's not a Canadian company. It's a Canadian front for uh, something else. Whether this can all be proved as the Biden train is rumbling down the track toward January 20th, I don't know. But quote-unquote voting machines should not exist. And if they do, as in this diseased voting system, they should not have algorithms and they should not be connected to the Internet. And Canada's chief electoral officer might make a useful expert witness because he can explain precisely why these machines would never be permitted in Canada or in Australia or Denmark or the Netherlands. By comparison with the rest of the functioning world, all America's biennial Elections are dirty to one degree or another. And in this one, the heist was brazen. I don't really want to live in a planet uh, secretly controlled by algorithms devised by big tech at the behest of George Soros, because in the end it causes you to doubt reality. If it's all going on unseen in the shadows round the back of the computer, then you're not, in the end, going to believe your lion eyes about anything. So I find myself pining for America's rather old-school summer when you'd look down from your bedroom window and see mobs lobbing concrete through store windows and burning down police stations and looting maces. There is an enemy in plain sight in such circumstances, and that's very clarifying. I prefer it to the dark world of algorithms. With that in mind, what do you reckon's going on here? This is Leicester Square Tube Station in London. And that's the sound of three well-built transgender ladies drop-kicking a 19-year-old guy and stamping on his head with their stiletto heels because he told them they needed female genitalia in order to be women. Of course, the term female genitalia is itself offensively transphobic. According to various medical authorities, we're now meant to refer to them as internal genitalia or... Uh, alternatively external genitalia, and this trio of transgender ladies were out and proud about their external genitalia. I, uh, I, I myself mostly have external genitalia, although if I'm on a dark street in Portland 
late at night and suddenly notice a gang of burly psychotrannies approaching from the opposite direction, I get that strange shrinking feeling, as if your external genitalia are suddenly going all internal on you. Anyway, the three Leicester Square high-heeled psychotrannies beat the rap at inner London Crown Court because, as the Crown prosecutor conceded, the victim had been racist to the very diverse transgender trio after saying, quote, you're not a woman, you need a bleep to be a woman. He then used the expression black C word, uh, the C word being an epithet uh, for the internal genitalia whose absence in their paralytic but comely forms he was bemoaning. The Crown would not even have brought the case had the victim's anti-black racism and transphobia not been partly mitigated by the fact that he himself belonged to a designated victim group. He was an Arab Muslim with the surname Al-Shahib. This is the West End of London in the 21st century, where unfortunate racist Muslims cannot walk the streets without being drop-kicked and stomped by marauding gangs of psychotrannies. What would H.G. Wells have said if you'd proposed that to him a century ago as a futuristic dystopia? Goodbye, Piccadilly. Farewell, Leicester Square. It's a long, long way to outrun a tranny, but I'm out of there. This is the way the world ends, said T.S. Eliot. Not with a bang, but a whimper. Uh, given the choice between the faint whimper of unseen algorithms or the explosive bang of transgender sperm whale bulls coming straight at you, I think, on balance, I prefer the latter. Speaking of the land where everything is policed except crime... Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. I was pretty confident that the Metropolitan Police and the other English constabularies, if not the Scots, Ulster and Welsh forces, would retain their edge in the wanker copper stakes. But then the Victoria Police in Australia decided to do a big up yours to the old cultural cringe and stick it up the mother country by harassing and arresting such social menaces as pregnant mums and disabled seniors. So... Good day. Mate. <laughs> it's your Vicwit Wanker Copper of the Day. Let me pregnant wife loose, Bruce. Let me pregnant wife loose. The docs all set to induce, Bruce. So let me pregnant wife loose. All together now, timey wanker cop down. Sport, timey wanker cop down. He's wankered up the old town. Sport, so timey wanker cop down. Yeah, I know, we weren't really trying with that one, were we? Just pulled it out of the icebox. Here's one I made earlier. Uh, but now South Australia has gone into lockdown, and it's a tighter regime even than Victoria's. If you're non-Aussie and you're wondering where South Australia is, well, it's in the south of Australia, and the capital city is Adelaide, Adelaide, ever loving Adelaide is taking a chance. 
Actually, Adelaide is taking no chances. Its lockdown is intended to make Melbourne's look like a few desultory, perfunctory half-measures by a bunch of Nancy boys. Andrea, or Andrea, is a lady who's pro-lockdown... Uh, loves it. The tighter the thumb screws, the better. Can't get enough. So when her husband absentmindedly got up and put the old leash on the pooch, she was aghast and decided to grass him to the peelers. Uh, so she tweeted at the South Australia police, uh, for the sake of my stupid husband, who's doing a Karen from Brighton moan, can you please broadcast very specific information about walking the dog? And South Australia police replied very specifically, Hi, Andrea, you cannot leave the house to walk the dog or to exercise. You cannot leave the house to walk the dog or to exercise. And that answer made Andrea very happy as she waited for her hubby and her hound to return. Thanks for replying. It's what I've been trying to tell him. Good work. So you can't walk the dog in South Australia. Better roll up that living room carpet and hope that an indoor pooper scooper qualifies as an essential item and can thus be purchased the next time the authorities permit you to leave the house. Oh, but don't worry, it's only temporary. Our health authorities are now exploring ways to potentially ease some restrictions. Sooner, the state government faced particular backlash for banning outdoor exercise, preventing people from even going outside to walk their dog. The Premier says that outdoor exercise will be the first restriction to be eased, possibly by the end of the weekend, so sooner than the rest of the hard lockdown which is due to end next Wednesday and this is after the state recorded zero new cases of COVID-19 yesterday despite a record 20,000 South Australians being tested in the past 48 hours. Ah but zero cases just shows how the lockdown is working so let's keep it going through the new year. How about a compromise? You can't walk the dog but once every day or two South Australia constables will put you on the leash and walk you up to the park to chase a squirrel for half an hour. I think this calls for our mega-wanker jingle. Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker in the blue hat? Who's the wanker in the big blue hat? Joining the Metropolitan Police and the Victoria Police in the all-mega-wanker cup, please welcome the South Australia Police. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance. Tales that transcend genre. Everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalogue of nearly three dozen Tales for Our Time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com slash T-F-O-T. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. This poem was published a century ago and for the first few decades chunted along and then from the 60s on so took off that almost every line has been cannibalized for book titles and pop songs and movie scripts. 
Uh, and if you've never heard the full poem before, you may feel rather like the apocryphal first-time theatre-goer who went to a production of Hamlet and complained that it was nothing but a bunch of old quotations strung together. Amazingly, the swirling vortex, the widening jar, as the author calls it, managed to widen and swirl even more when Brexit and Trump and a terrible summer of Islamic terrorism in France led to this poem being publicly cited more in the first seven months of 2016 than in any of the previous 30 years. William Butler Yeats began writing this piece in January 1919. In times that are not unlike ours, there was a pandemic. His wife was stricken by the Spanish flu, and as she was pregnant, that put her at especially high risk. 70% of women with child died of the virus. There were cop killings. In Tipperary, the IRA killed two officers of the Royal Irish Constabulary that month, uh, still sufficiently shocking to disturb Yates. There were competing governments. A revolutionary regime met in Dublin and uh, proclaimed uh, its independence, even as its uh, president-elect, so to speak, was unrecognised by the lawful government in London. And all this was in a country that had supposedly come out on the winning side of the global turmoil. On the continent, it was even worse. The German, Austrian, Russian and Turkish empires had all fallen, with consequences we live with to this day. Yeats brooded on a lot of the specifics, but he wanted to write something of more general application. His early drafts had a lot of particulars about the French Revolution and the like, which he discarded in favour of one central image, a second coming that undoes the first, that unravels two millennia, that looses a blood-dimmed tide upon the world. Emphasis on world. It's not just about you or me, but as Yeats calls it, the spiritus mundi, the global soul, as it were, a concept that uh, predates Christianity. You can find it in Plato and the Stoics and elsewhere. First published 100 years ago, November 1920, in the literary magazine The Dial, by William Butler Yeats, The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening jar, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming! Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. 
but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle, and what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. A poem from Me to You, The Second Coming, by W.B. Yeats, celebrating its centennial this month, much quoted in 2016, and maybe over the coming months too. You know who's partial to all the slouching towards Bethlehem? Stephen King, in his novel The Stand, a weaponized superflu escapes from a lab and wipes out almost all mankind, and as one guard observes, as it departs the laboratory, the beast is on its way. It's on its way, and it's a good deal rougher than that fellow Yeats ever could have imagined. Things are falling apart. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Mark uh, Zabitz, uh, or perhaps Zabitz. I hope I haven't mispronounced it, Mark. Uh, Mark is the first day founding member of the Mark Stein Club from the rotten boroughs of Pennsylvania. And Mark writes, Mark, you've said on multiple times the future belongs to those who show up. Well, I showed up along with 70 million plus Trump voters, and it seems like my future got stolen by the Democrats. Now what? Oh, and by the way, the new Democrat Party election slogan should be lie, cheat and steal, defended by the law firm of Dewey Cheatham and how? Now what? Now what? Indeed, Mark. If Joe Biden is inaugurated as president on January 20th, now what? If you believe the election was stolen in the early hours of November the 4th, as I do, you're going to have great difficulty accepting the Biden administration as a legitimate government. And indeed, you never should accept them. Uh, the Russia hoax at least have the advantage of suggesting that if only Vladimir Putin and the Macedonian content farmers hadn't got involved, we would have had a regular, straightforward, honest election. Foreign interference is in that sense preferable uh, to corrupt election officials in American cities uh, that's to say, your neighbours and maybe in some cases your friends. Uh, corrupted election officials stealing the election on behalf of their candidate. That shatters the democratic compact, which is very simple. We don't have wars. Or we don't have uh, tribal wars. We have elections. And the central purpose of an election is to bind the losing party to the result. Because it was a free and fair election, you take the knocks, you pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and prepare to make your case next time, because you know that A, you'll get a fair say, and B, you'll get a fair count. The Democrats and the media are now telling us neither of those conditions apply. It's uh, a fortnight since the election, and big tech is already demonetizing Dan Bongino, suppressing Mark Levin's Facebook posts, and vaporizing conservative treehouse. At this rate, the internet will be closing down round about next April. And then, of course, we have the 
fair count. If they stole it this time, why wouldn't they steal it next time? In fact, even as I speak, they're preparing to steal the Senate races in Georgia. A stolen election destroys the political system's legitimacy, especially in a presidential republic. The president is not just the head of government, but also the head of state. He's the one who hands out the medals and takes the salute, not the queen. So a thieving politician in this system steals the totality of national life uh, in a way that he can't in the, uh, in the Westminster system in, uh, in, in Ottawa or London or Canberra. Election theft undermines uh, not just the system, but a broader concept of freedom. We believe in free speech because it is a means to persuade our fellow man. But if the elections are stolen, persuasion is pointless. It's the theft that matters, not how many minds you change. Um, elections are the ultimate expression of the civic settlement. Um, citizen Smith casts a vote equal to Citizen Jones, but not if Citizen Jones votes twice and in a district he doesn't live in, and Citizen Jones's deceased great-grandmother also casts a vote, and Citizen Jones's illegal alien nanny votes, and the homeless person Citizen Jones steps over as he enters his office votes. Uh, voting is the ultimate civic ritual, and if your vote is undermined, your citizenship is undermined. Indeed, in a certain sense, you are no longer a citizen. Uh, a citizen equal in law to any other citizen. What will the Republican Party do about any of this? In 2016, many powerful Democrats declined to show up for Trump's inauguration. There were no serious accusations that uh, he had stolen this or that state or city or precinct. He was illegitimate simply because he was beyond the bounds of conventional politics. This time round with far more specific charges and far more specific evidence, will Republican legislators boycott a Biden inauguration? Ha! Half of them are already jostling to be the Bob Dole, the John McCain, the Mitt Romney of 2024. So the representatives of those 70 million, as Mark puts it, actually closer to 75, will help legitimize the illegitimate president. As I've said uh, a few times before, it was a condition of my admission to this great republic that I agree not to ferment the overthrow of the government of the United States. But I confess I am in a fermenting mood. And it is just a question of how to direct my fermenting inclinations most effectively, we will we will talk some more about fermenting uh, as we see how this thing goes in the weeks ahead. But one thing I know, once you're on the receiving end of a stolen election, you can't simply go on to the next round as if nothing has happened, as if this time around it will be conducted fairly. What happened in the early hours of November the 4th is a challenge to the legitimacy of the entire system. But the Democrats have made a bet that the GOP does not have the stomach to rise to that challenge. And so it is for 70 million plus Americans to prove them wrong in that assumption. And now, Stein Online presents 
Mark Stein's Song of the Week. When it came to songwriting, Ira Gershwin liked to cite the old Encyclopedia Britannica definition. Song is the joint art of words and music, two arts under emotional pressure coalescing into a third. Ira's friend, Yip Harburg, lyricist of uh, Over the Rainbow and Brother Can You Spare a Dime, Yip preferred his own definition. Words make you think a thought, music makes you feel a feeling, a song makes you feel a thought. But I don't think there are words for the way I'm feeling at the moment, so we're going to do something we have never done in the long history of our Song of the Week, and we are going to feature a purely instrumental composition in hopes that its soothing strains will back us a little off the ledge of that W.B. Yeats poem. Rodrigo's Guitar Concerto de Aranweth is celebrating its 80th birthday this month, and that's the fellow who introduced it and to whom it is dedicated. Uh, Tania did a bit of a brisker clip than it's generally uh, played at nowadays. Regino Sainz de la Mata. Uh, on November 6th, 1940, he premiered the piece at the Palau de la Musica Catalana in Barcelona. This was the dawn of the Franco era in Spain, and everyone was a bit twitchy about potentially political art. Uh, so when the composer, Joaquin Rodrigo, named his concerto after the Palacio Real de Aranjuez, built by King Philip II in the 16th century, and uh, said it was his attempt uh, to capture in music the fragrance of magnolias, the singing of birds, and the gushing of fountains in the gardens of Aranwith. Uh, everyone assumed he was just doing that as a bland, uh, inoffensive cover to fool the censors, and that it must really be about the Spanish Civil War. And for many years, this second movement, the Adagio, was assumed uh, to be about the bombing of Yannicka in 1937. And it was only many decades later that Rodrigo and his wife Victoria disclosed that in fact it was nothing to do with war or politics or Franco, but rather about the happiness of their honeymoon and their grief at the miscarriage of their first child. And when King Juan Carlos uh, ennobled at the end of his life Rodrigo, the composer took as his title Marquez 
Deloth Hadineth de Aranwath, Marquis of the Gardens of Aranwath. So I guess there must really have been some of that behind the music. Rodrigo was blind and could play only the piano, not the guitar, and guitar concerti are few and far between in any case, but this became perhaps the best-known classical guitar piece of the modern era. Guitarists of all stripes, classical guitarists, jazz guitarists, rock guitarists, came to love it. And so all kinds of people have recorded it. Julian Bream, John Williams, the modern jazz quartet, The Shadows, Miles Davis, Jose Feliciano, Bobby McFerrin, Stevie Wonder, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Deep Purple, who called it the Orange Juice song. Aran Juice. Orange Juice. Uh, but this is the version that became a huge hit in Britain and all over Europe, much of the Commonwealth, uh, possibly because it was by a combo called Manuel and the Music of the Mountains. And it doesn't get much more Spanish than Manuel. And the music of the mountains uh, is therefore presumably a reference to the Pyrenees. In fact, Manuel was a black Yorkshireman, not from the Pyrenees, but from the Pennines, just northeast of Manchester. Uh, Jeff Love uh, was a hugely successful uh, British band leader and arranger, and he came up with a lot of hit records. Uh, in the 50s, with Little Laurie London, he's got the whole world in his hands, was a number one in America, and in the 60s with Peter and Gordon, A World Without Love, was a number one in Britain, but kind of halfway between those two number ones, 1960. Uh, Jeff came up with a record with such a different uh, instrumentation that the record company thought it would disappoint fans of his usual sound, and so some bloke in the promotions department invented a name, Manuel, and then added the music of the mountains for alliterative purposes. And unfortunately, that one-off single, Honeymoon, became such a hit that they demanded an album and then another, and Jeff Love found himself playing Manuel for the rest of his life. I knew his uh, son, uh, Adrian, at Capital Radio and BBC Radio 2. He was a troubled soul uh, fired by the BBC for being paralytically drunk on air. Jeff Love, by contrast, was the sweetest man, if a somewhat improbable Spaniard. Here we are many years ago. Welcome along, Jeff. Thank you, Mark. It's nice to be here. Now, what, what's it like being Manuel? Um, I think of Manuel as, fair enough, as a completely different entity. Mm. I mean, I'll say, oh, that's a good tune for Manuel, and then <laughs> I'll start thinking in that... In that <laughs> you see, the Manuel Orchestra is completely mm. and utterly different to any other. Uh. The Jeff Love Orchestra is the normal strings, brass, woodwind rhythm. The Manuel Orchestra is strings, a choir, which, as I say, never sing words, they're only, they're only a tone colour, ten guitars, uh, you see, there's five uh, rhythm guitars yes. and five front-line guitars, three harps, 
uh, and the, uh, about four or so, four or five percussion players mm. and the rhythm section. Mm. You know, you've got the um, bass and that. Mm. Yeah. So it's a completely different tone yes. colour. Yes. And uh, and of course, something like it must be something like fifteen years or fifteen, sixteen years after the original Manuel hit, you had another hit single with uh, the Rodriguez. Rodriguez, yes. Uh, that that became a hit. Let's see, the, the Manuel was 1960, I think, Honeymoon Song. Mm. That's right. And the guitar concerto was 1976. Yeah, yes, yeah. Good, good counting. <laughs> <Some> approximating <laughs> yeah. in my head, yes. You've got a little calculator in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 16 years later. But, you know, there's a funny story attached to that uh. one, too, the Rodriguez, because I made that album. It was, it became, it was on an album called Carnival, yes. and that was just a track on the album, which I made in 1971. Uh, uh, in 1975, September, Pete Murray yes. played that track on his Open House programme, the BBC Open House oh. programme, and it got a few inquiries. He played it again uh, a couple of weeks later, and then it started, inquiries started coming in for it, so much so that the record company mm. had to issue it as a single. Mm. And it got up, and it was selling like mad, and then it vanished in the Christmas rush, you see, yes. so I thought, oh, well, that was great that while it lasted. <laughs> 1976 February, it started coming up, up again, and it got it actually got up to number one for mm. ten minutes. <laughs> on, yes, and then yes. The, and um, then it was taken out because the computer had gone wrong and they they didn't yes, have any hit parade that week. No, that's mm. that's right. I remember that. Yeah, and it's an amazing thing though because the the, the, the um, piece of music has been around for years and years and years. Yes. And then suddenly it became popular, and I think every guitarist in the world has recorded it. <laughs> Everybody's played it, and it's um, it's amazing. It had been lying around for years and years and years, but it had taken your version before people people really knew it. Yes, well, you know, you know, um, I, 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 don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to say that I was clever or anything. <laughs> I was lucky, but it's a lovely concerto. But there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of padding around mm. that beautiful melody mm. and I think the, I mean the second that's the slow the movement, movement yeah. and I think that movement alone uh, runs for about nine minutes that one yes. movement so I just boiled the got the nice bit of melody and boiled it down to four minutes and um, and, and um, the public liked it that way <laughs> I remember this one woman said that her idea of heaven was lying in bed listening to that eating a box of chocolates <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I like lying uh, in it, listen, lying to bed listening to it. I, I never You'll have the box of chocolates, yes. <laughs>
Well, that soothed me no end. The Adagio from Rodrigo's Concierto de Aranjuez by Manuel and his Music of the Mountains, a.k.a. Dear Old Jeff Love. And Jeff's quite right. That arrangement got to number one in the UK in 1976 for about oh, uh, 20 minutes because there was some kerfuffle and they wound up withdrawing the entire top 40 that week almost as soon as they'd put it out. Um, it was something to do with computer tabulation, and so after issuing the results, they took them back, a bit like uh, Florida in 2000. Oh, no, no, no! I wanted this to be a bit of escapism from America's running sewer of election fraud, and I've gone and wrecked it all and reminded myself of Philadelphia and Milwaukee and the other toilets where democracy goes to die. Ah, me. Ah, me. Happy 80th birthday to Rodrigo's Guitar Concerto. That will do it for today's show. Have a great weekend. Kathy Shadle is back on the Saturday Movie Beat. And I'll be here a couple of hours after that with a brand new tale for our time. I hope you'll want to listen to that. We have a distressing number of uh, rockers among our listeners. And judging from our mailbag, they become paradoxically enraged by soothing light orchestral works. So just for you guys, here's Deep Purple. Stay safe, stay free. time for another edition of the Mark Stein Show. reserved.